Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but the first time I really heard about critical theory sort of in the media was right about the time the George Floyd fiasco occurred. Uh, an awful event in our history, but it's exploded in the public mind since then, and it's been infiltrating itself into our institutions and our schools and even our churches. That's why the brand new book, Critical Dilemma, written by Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer, is a must-read no matter where you are in society. Both uh, Dr. Shenvey and Sawyer are evangelical Christians, but they're both PhDs, and they've done a great work here in pulling together from the original sources what critical theory really is and how we are to take the good things from it but leave the bad things because there are plenty on plenty of bad things about this. It's really a, it's really a different worldview, and in the in the program we had last week, we covered some of those differences. I just want to go a little bit further with uh, Neil and Pat today uh, about this topic. And uh, gentlemen, and f- by the way, for those you who didn't listen to the last podcast, you're kind of be picking it up in the middle of the movie here. So you, you have to go back and listen to the past pod, the last podcast to sort of pick up where we were. Uh, we were at the end of the last podcast, gentlemen, talking about Uh, whether people could take anything from critical theory uh, if they're evangelical Christians. And uh, Pat, you were saying that you can't take the whole thing because then you're going to take this completely different moral code and try and force it into Christianity and it can't be forced in. What did you mean by that? What, What is antithetical in critical theory to Christianity morally? Well, what I mean by that is that critical social theory has a a number of moral claims that would run counter to the Christian faith. For instance, critical social theory, a critical so, a popular critical social theory is queer theory. And queer theory, for instance, says that homosexuality is something that is good, something that is positive, and the Bible would indicate otherwise. And so immediately you have a a clash of perspective in terms of sexual ethics. And then downstream for how that we think about sex would be marriage. So queer theory would be pro same sex marriage where the, mm. the, but the Bible would indicate that marriage should be between one man and one woman. And so those are two different visions of marriage and they're not reconcilable. Those who are Christians should care for the gay community, should love the gay community in the sense of trying to come alongside that community, speak truth under the the ways that God has told us to speak truth with love, with our words being full of grace, seasoned with salt. But yet we need to bring truth to bear upon the gay community around sexual ethics, for instance. And that's just one out of many different uh, perspectives that are different between the Christian faith 
and critical social theory. And you can't serve two masters. You're going to have to come Mm. down to either changing your perspective, if you profess to be a Christian, changing your perspective to accommodate the moral claims and perspectives of critical social theory. And we would also, I would also mention that critical social theory wants to colonize the mind. It wants to take more and more jurisdiction of how you think. Critical social theory answers questions around phenomenology, you know, day-to-day lived experience, ontology, what it means to be a human being, epistemology, how we know what is true. And so if you're answering those questions, now you're into a worldview, a robust meta-narrative. And now you're at a place where you're diametrically opposed to how the Christian faith and Christian epistemology is now answering those questions of phenomenology, ontology, and and epistemology. The Christian faith is handling those questions entirely differently. Neil, uh, do you think that the deconstruction of all these moral norms that queer theory wants to accomplish will lead to pedophilia? Is that where we're heading? I'd like to say no, uh, but as we document in the book, there's just so much evidence the answer is yes. Uh, there are, you know, when you saw the quotes, Frank, our editor actually uh, asked, he requested that we we uh, edit out some of the more explicit sexual language, and it's in brackets in the book, but you can kind of tell from mm. the context what they were saying. But they will openly say that the issue of what they call intergenerational sex, what we would call pedophilia, was openly discussed within the queer theory literature. And what they would view it, they would say, look, the child adult binary is a social construct, just like the the male-female binary is a social construct. And we need to give children sexual agency, allow them to have the freedom to choose their partners of any age. That They would see that as a liberating experience, and they would push for that. And they have already pushed for that. In the 60s, there was a major push among French intellectuals to get rid of the age of consent law. And again, they're open about this in the literature. Now, whether or not that will ever make it into mainstream society and into law, we better pray that it does not. But it's not a hidden uh, surmise that we're making. We're just reading and quoting from the theorists themselves. And Frank, you, isn't it? We also yeah, see, go ahead, we also go. see the language is being assaulted in this area. We're onboarding terms mm. like minor attracted persons. To, I was just going to suggest that. That's what I've heard. Yeah, they're they're trying to change the language to make pedophilia seem more palatable. Minor attracted persons. Is that that's that's the new. Yeah, term, and again, right? if people think we're just scaremongering here, I would just urge you to look at the quotes in our book from major queer theorists that talk about this issue. There there are a lot of them. And, and we, Pat, why do why do they lump all this together? Why do you have to take queer theory along with critical race theory? Why is it one big? You got to take the whole thing or nothing. Well, I'll, I'll get to that. I will say that right. obviously there are people that are part of the gay community that resist pedophilia and think that people should go to jail if that takes right. place. But it it is true that the knowledge area itself makes room for the viability and the reasonableness of pedastry and pedophilia. That is true, and we, we quote sources that underscore that. Now, to answer your, your question, it's because critical social theory views oppression in a broad way and interlocking. And in that if you're actually going to be truly anti-racist, you're going to be pushing against racism, then that also means that you have to push against heteronormativity. 
And that also why, means that you though? have to. Why? Well, why, 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 why are the two related? Why is race related to, to heterosexuality and homosexuality? I don't get because it. Because cri critical theory, historic critical theory, and a, a general definition of critical theory is this, an approach to, and a method of social analysis that prioritizes power, who has it and who doesn't and why. And those who are left out of power, left out of the status quo, have been minoritized. They've been marginalized and disenfranchised. And critical theory, unlike traditional theory that just wants to describe what is, critical theory wants to prescribe a vision for society in keeping with social justice. And since that is the campaign of critical theory, then that means we can't just stop at racism in terms of that oppression. We have to think about all the oppressions that are taking place in society if we're going to be true to the spirit of critical theory. And I'll give one more a reason. So yeah, go ahead, Crenshaw yeah. defined, Kimberly Crenshaw is a critical race theorist who coined mm. the term intersectionality. So she would say that not only do you have racism and sexism, but you have they interlock to shape the experience of a black woman. A black woman is not simply a black person plus a woman. It's that she has a unique experience uh, in her life because of the intersection of her blackness and her femaleness. And, and also then she has special insight into society that a black male or a white female would not have. So that theory of intersectionality is very widespread. What it means is the more of these marginalized identities you can claim, the more insight you have into society and the more authority you're granted. What that means is that if you're a black woman, you have more authority than, say, a white woman or a black man. But if you're a black lesbian woman, you have more authority than a uh, black straight man. Or, But, but also it would mean that things like if you're a non-binary black woman, that you have more authority to speak on gender and sexuality. So to say, well, I want to just talk about race and not about sexuality or not about gender, intersectionality says you can't do that because you're actually erasing these gendered sexualities. You're erasing these raced sexualities. You're erasing these differently abled sexualities by saying, well, I just want to separate all those categories. They, they say you can't do that. Would, would they consider criminal law oppressive? Uh, and what, what, the, re, the reason I'm asking that is because couldn't a... Uh, couldn't a, pe a pedophile say I'm being oppressed by the law or couldn't a adulterer say I'm oppressed because I don't have no fault divorce in my state or couldn't even a murderer say, look, I'm oppressed. They're throwing me in jail. Uh, I, I engaged in a behavior. Well, homosexuals engage in a behavior. Heterosexuals engage in a behavior. The question is, is the behavior something that we ought to engage in? So would they consider criminal law oppressive? I mean, we have these woke DAs who basically let people out. Is it, are they critical theorists? What are they? It's interesting you asked that question, Frank, because uh, there's a paper. I don't know if we said it in our book or in an, a law review article that I wrote with my friend Timon Klein. There's a paper called Race-Based Jury Nullification by a former DA in Washington, D.C. I believe he was a Yale law student. But he argued that blacks have the uh, authority and even obligation to free guilty black nonviolent criminals. These are guilty criminals, but if they're nonviolent, then because of the harm that it does the black community, because they are doing these things because of their oppression, that the black jurors should nullify the charges against them purely because of their race. So now there are, so there are critical race theorists actually stating explicitly 
that, for example, juries should nullify laws or criminal charges against blacks specifically because of their race. Now, more broadly, if you ask, what about law itself? Well, interestingly, critical race theory comes out of critical legal studies, which would say that all laws, all laws are nothing more than extensions of hegemonic power. So if you point to this example, an easy example would be property crime. They would say property crime exists as a category, not because God forbids theft, but because rich men want to protect their privilege. And why, mm. then you could push that farther. Well, why do you say statutory rape laws exist to protect the patriarch in some, you know, some vague way or to oppress women and to treat children as helpless? And so you could make this corrosive case that all law is merely reifying power differentials. Now, they're not, they're not going to go so far as to say we should have no laws against murder. They're not going to go there. But that's the universal asset of critical theory's approach to law, is that it does lead you to ask questions like, well, where do you stop then? Which laws are just? Mm -hmm. Well, they might as well say that if they're going to defund the police, because that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to go to something that you said. You, you said this, Pat, on a podcast with uh, Sean McDowell. Um, you were actually talking to a soft white supremacist group who um, basically decided that he was going to use his own personal experience to judge all black people. Why is that invalid and how does it in a way invalidate the idea that our lived experience should be supreme? Yeah, so we're flipping the script there. You know, the fact mm -hmm. that the the salt white supremacist that I was talking to pointed to five or six anecdotal things that took place in his lived experience for then for him to extrapolate from that a universal principle and belief that blacks are inferior to whites. And so most of us can see the, the bad logic in that, that you've taken a small sample set, your lived experience, and now you've derived a whole ideological perspective based upon it. And I use that example to try to dislodge people from seeing their lived experience as a way to authentically extrapolate a universal principle. That we, We've got to disabuse ourselves of that. Now, it is true that our lived experience can give us particular insights about certain things. It's also true that our lived experience may line up with the universal reality on this various topic that we're talking about. It very well may, and it might give us some insight about it. But we cannot make it automatic in terms of now that I've had this lived experience. And again, we were talking about individuality earlier. What the critical social theory would say is that you take, if, particularly if you're in a minoritized constituency or group, you take your individual lived experience, but then now you locate it in identity politics, essentially. You locate mm. it in the identity of the social group that you're connected to and and perceptions around how that social group should be thought about and contextualized. And and, Neil, and that runs go, into sorry, a, ahead, a world of hurt in terms of how to think about uh, universal principles relative to various topics in society. Neil, is it possible we did that as a nation, taking an individual event like the terrible George Floyd event, and then applied that to all police officers? Because in 2019, according to U.S. government statistics, there were nine black men, unarmed black men shot by police in the whole country in 2019. At the same time, there were 19 white, unarmed white men shot by police. 
So this is a very rare instance where police of any race fire on anyone else who is unarmed. Uh, now, of course, in the George Floyd situation, there were there were no shots fired. But do you think that we took as a nation that one event and applied it illegitimately to all police officers? Yeah, I think we did. And also, but I think it goes back farther than that. I think these perspectives mm -hmm. have been around for decades, really. And only George Floyd and other incidents of police violence or even just, just civilian violence have been fed a narrative that when you compare it to, like you said, objective data on how rare, they're terrible situations, but they're rare situations. When you mm -hmm. look at that and you look at the objective data, you say, wait a minute, this narrative just doesn't hold up. But the problem is there's a pre-commitment to exalting lived experience and exalting the sort of critical race theories narrative about the persistence of racism that are that's preloaded and that you fit the anecdotes into so that's why we're calling people to, hey, let's take, keep our heads clear. We we get that there are these terrible in, incidents that happen. They do happen. We can lament them. We can say they're awful. And yet step back now, look at the broader data from society, from surveys, from studies. And they'll show two things. They'll show that racism, racial discrimination does still exist. It's still there, but it's not nearly as widespread as you might think. There's actually a survey from Skeptic Magazine that asked people to um, estimate how many black men were killed by police every year. And I think one of mm. the, like the median number was something like a thousand to ten thousand. It was it was and the actual right. number is about two hundred and fifty. And that's including armed mm -hmm. people that were armed and were ended up being killed by police. Yes. Not even unarmed. So the point is just that people's perceptions are not matching reality. And we want to always, you know, because we believe that there is objective truth, we always have to test our lived experiences and our anecdotes and our narratives against the Bible and against objective reality. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, do you see the problem with that tenet of critical theory that is so well explained in the new book, Critical Dilemma by Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer, that yes, lived experience is important, but if you take your lived experience and apply it without other data to the entire world, that may or may not be true. That's why people always ask me, you know, Frank, what are you seeing on college campuses? Well, I can tell you what I see, but I can't extrapolate that to all students. Because I have a very limited perspective. The people that come to our seminars, you know, we do 15 or 20 a year. I, I can't make a broad generalization to say that, you know, all college students uh, agree with X, Y, or Z. I can only say what I experience. And it may or may not be true of the larger group. So that's a critical thing, friends. When you're doing social science research, you can't apply. First of all, you can't do it either way. You can't apply anecdotal anecdotal. Um, uh, data to groups and you can't apply group data to individuals because that's you you can't say because the medium income of someone in detroit is fifty thousand dollars that the, every person you meet in detroit is going to make an income of fifty thousand you, you just can't do it you don't know so you, you need to do when you're doing good social science research and both neil and pat have done it in the book critical dilemma You've got to make sure you're using your methods correctly. Let's talk a little bit about the Bible before we go, because that is our standard as Christians. Um, you guys make a warning in the book about something known as egalitarianism. Explain why you make that warning and why. Why don't we start with you, uh, Pat, and then we'll go to Neil. We make that warning because there's kind of two ways to think about egalitarianism. 
an egalitarian could come to a belief that is essentially egalitarian by looking at the scriptures and being convinced that the scriptures actually teach egalitarianism, a proper exegetical approach to the scriptures. Or meaning there are no unique roles for men or women there. They can all do the same that, thing. That, that's right. They could come to that belief okay, because right. they, they are persuaded with a proper hermeneutical approach to exegete the passages. They think that the scripture is teaching that. Now they're incorrect. The scripture is not teaching that. Neil and I would say that that, that mm-hmm. the scriptures teach a, a complementarian view where there's distinctions in roles. However, egalitarians, a second way an egalitarian comes about in terms of conclusions about this topic is that they don't adopt a proper exegetical approach. What they adopt is a social or ethnic lens to then judge the scriptures. And so when someone Mm. is doing that, they're committing eisegesis. They're bringing their own personal background to the scriptures to look at the scriptures and look as a lens to the scriptures to determine what they believe based upon their ethnic or social lens. And that right there will get you in a world of hurt. And if you are someone who is bathed in the critical tradition and in critical social theory, then you are bathed in a perspective that is taking that social location, that ethnic location, that gender location, and that standpoint epistemology of those locations to determine what is true. And that is going to get you into a world of hurt. And so if you are onboarding critical social theory in terms of how you think, then you're going to be susceptible to egalitarianism. You will not be susceptible to complementarianism if you're onboarding critical social theory, because a complementarian view would isolate and bracket out any uh, any social location or ethnic location that the person looking at the scripture has and would bracket that, set that aside and would try to get to an understanding of what the actual authors stated about the text to come to a conclusion. And uh, Neil, our fear is that egalitarianism, if it's really pressed, will then lead people further and further away from what the scriptures are actually teaching on other subjects. Neil, how might this hermeneutic of uh, sort of uh, viewpoint superiority. That's not the right word for it. Standpoint, but if somebody, right. you know, standpoint, is it standpoint superiority? Standpoint, or sta- epistemology. standpoint, right. standpoint epistemology, that somebody who, who has more uh, checks in the block with regard to intersectionality has more authority. How might that affect someone's evaluation of, say, LGBTQ, what the scripture teaches about LGBTQ, or maybe even what scripture teaches about the atonement. Yeah, it really is a slippery slope. And I don't mean because it just happens to, all these issues happen to fall together. It's that they actually, you're adopting a hermeneutic and approach to the Bible and an approach to ideas like oppression uh, that are antithetical to the Bible that you're bringing into the Bible. And so once you say things like, uh, I, I'm approaching the text not to figure out what Paul meant, but I'm approaching it from a feminist lens. I'm going to read that mm. the whole Bible through the feminist lens. Well, why? Well, because I think the feminist lens is somehow going to give me greater insight into the, the truth behind the Bible, the, the real meaning of the Bible. Well, then immediately you have to ask, well, why not an LGBTQ lens, a queer lens? Why wouldn't you use that lens? Why wouldn't you use a post-colonial lens to view the Bible? And so these 
uh, what we're noticing is a shift among egalitarians from trying to approach the text and argue exegetically. Well, the Bible, Paul actually taught this. We see a shift from that to saying, no, I'm going to not really worry about what Paul taught. And I'm going to ask, how does this reading further justice? And that's really dangerous because, and again, who's justice? The feminist justice, mm-hmm. queer justice, gender mm-hmm. justice, what kind of justice? So we're, we're seeing that it's not just a slippery slope. It's people being consistent and approaching the Bible via social science rather than approaching the Bible as people trying to understand what Paul say or, or, or Luke or Matthew were actually teaching. Friends, we've talked about this before. This is what we talk about the in the Unshaken Conference with that uh, Elisa Childers, Natasha Crane, and myself do. The ultimate question is, who's your authority? Are you the authority or is God the authority? Is culture the authority again or is God the authority? Is it more meology or theology? And that's the core of what's going on here. If you take a critical race theory or any critical theory, hook, line, line and sinker, the Bible is not going to be the authority. Uh, the culture or whatever the theory is or whoever has viewpoint uh, epistemology, as Pat just put it, that's going to be the authority, and that's a dead end theologically. Um, gentlemen, let's wrap this up by asking you, what are the main points, primary points, that uh, you want people to walk away from after reading the new book, Critical Dilemma? We'll start with Pat, and then we'll go to Neil. Go ahead, Pat. Well, my hope, our hope is that people will come away with kind of a primer on critical social theory to be able to talk about it in intelligent ways and Mm -hmm. have some be kind of hip to the knowledge area in terms of what it is trying to do relative to the penetration of society and also the church. We would also like people to come away with this perspective that you can understand the issues with critical social theory and reject areas that go against biblical perspective and still be concerned about racism and sexism and injustice, and Mm -hmm. then still make efforts to redress and remedy those uh, realities in society or in the church, that you don't have to onboard critical social justice or critical social theory or aspects of it to be rightly concerned about justice issues that are still present today. So it's our hope that people will come away armed and ready to deal with the justice issues that are in front of them, but doing it in a way with biblical fidelity. I think the big takeaway for me is that the Bible offers us the actual solution to our problem. These great people are seeking healing and unity across lines of race, class, and gender. They're seeking justice. We're not taking away from that. But we want people to see that the Bible has addressed these issues and that we have unity right now in Christ through the gospel, that it's it's enough of course, it's not, you know, we still have to do things like caring about racism, sexism, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't have to go outside the Bible. We don't have to, we don't have to transgress the Bible, that it's it's all there for us. And uh, I, I really also hope that this would be the kind of book people can actually hand to non-Christians because it's it's filled with Christian theology. There's a whole chapter on evangelical theology, talk about the gospel extensively. And I really want this to be a book that we, I think it's, it's so informative about social critical social theory that we want hand it to your Christian friends and colleagues and say, hey, check this out. If you want to really learn about these theories, 
this is a great book. And then they're also brought to see that, hey, Christianity cares about these issues and yet has a better way. And they'll hear the gospel too, which is like, that's even though it's a book about critical social theory, we also want it to be a tool that can even evangelize non-believers. Neil, uh, what does Paul mean to kind of wrap this whole thing up when he says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's neither um, Jew or Gentile. Does he mean those distinctions don't exist anymore? What does he really right, mean? Right, and he can't mean that because he says male or female. And and in no sense mm-hmm. do Christians stop having genders when we become Christian. Uh-huh. It's a great thing <laughs> right. being a male and a female is a part of God's good design. So we can't mean it's all erased. We're always going to be as blob together. No, he's mm-hmm. saying that those identities, although they still exist, are radically demoted in importance. Now that we're Christians, the number one thing about us or about anybody else is that they're in God's family now, that we have unity with them, that we're brought together by the blood of Christ. And then we have equal standing before God. For the throne of God, we're brothers and sisters now. So that's a way of both affirming the goodness of God's, these created categories and ethnicity itself is is something that God has given us to gift. It'll be in heaven, Revelations 5, 9, and 7, 9, every tribe and nation and tongue worshiping God together, the same time our identity in Christ surpasses all of those things and is the basis for unity along lines of race, class, and gender. Ladies and gentlemen, if we said many times on this program before in Christianity, you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. Christ has done all the work. And because he's done all the work, then we're motivated to try and help people who have been oppressed But that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ paid it all. And if he paid it all, then out of gratitude for what he's done, we will try and do good work. So uh, you need to get the book, ladies and gentlemen, Critical Dilemma by Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. It is heavily referenced, but it's accessible. It's got just about every possible endorsement on it for good reason. You can go to criticaldilemma.com to see all those. Uh, if you want to take a look at it before you buy it, it'll be your one-two or your one-stop shop for critical theory. So, gentlemen, thanks for being with me. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. That's Pat Sawyer and Neil Shenvey. And friends, don't forget tonight. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, I'm in noon in Georgia. Go to our website. Then this weekend, the SES Steadfast Con- Conference. Go to ses.edu. Look for conference. It's just south of Charlotte, North Carolina in Rock Hill. I'll be speaking there as well on the Sunday morning services. And next week, we'll see you at Ohio State. God bless. See you next time, Lord willing.